This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. This week, the business of chocolate. They were amazed because they'd never thought about where did chocolate come from, where, where did cocoa come from, the plight of the people who are actually growing the cocoa. Sophie Tranchell, MD of Divine Chocolate. I don't think consumers are aware of what's going on. So when you see a product promoted in your supermarket, who do you think funds the promotion? So the interesting thing from the point of view of the farmers is we pay the guaranteed fair trade price and the $200 a tonne fair trade social premium, whether we make a profit or not. That's the business model. Welcome to Unregulated, City AM's professional development podcast. We talk about entrepreneurial stories, how to be better at your job and taking the next steps in your career. This week, we're exploring social enterprise and whether it's even possible to do good and make a profit at the same time. Joining us is Sophie Tranchell, the MD of Divine Chocolate, which is fair trade and 44% owned by cocoa farmers. Sophie's just been named runner-up in the Verve Clico Businesswoman Awards. We actually haven't had a lot of social entrepreneurs on this podcast before, which is a crying shame to be honest. Um, but before we start talking about social enterprise, I kind of wanted to talk about you because you started out in film. So how did you end up at Divine? I used to work for a film distribution company that distributed quite alternative films. So okay. we, dist- we distributed art house films and they were, quite a lot of them were Latin American. We, we distributed the early Al Maldivar films. And so it was quite unusual. So it was niche within an industry that has a very mainstream bit. I suppose what I'd got really good at was doing marketing of niche products. And so I'd sort of that sense of really finding the audience that was going to like a film that was from Brazil and therefore in Portuguese or like a film that was from Argentina. You know, why why would people want to go and see these films? And so I think I'd got very good at marketing. And then the other thing that I'd also done as a young person was I'd done a lot of anti-apartheid campaigning. Mm -hmm. And so that was a campaign to boycott products from from apartheid South Africa as a way of saying we didn't think that that was the right system and we thought Mandela should be released and that then he should be able to stand for president and that black people should have a vote. And so I spent quite a lot of my youth standing outside supermarkets telling people what not to buy. (laughs) So when I saw a little tiny advert in the newspaper for Divine... I really thought it was an opportunity to put those different things together. So that sort of sense that Divine was a fantastic chocolate brand, but it was owned significantly by cocoa farmers and they were not only going to get the benefit of the fair trade price and premium, but they were also going to get the benefit of owning a company and hearing about how the industry works, having a say in how a company's run and getting a share of the profits. It was an irresistible combination. And what I felt as if I could do was take the marketing skills that I'd developed in terms of marketing um, films from different countries and things um, but also take what I'd known from my campaigning days of mobilising people to actually use the power in their pocket to make the world the way they'd like it to be so I felt as if you could get those people who had told people what not to buy and had stood outside supermarkets and petrol stations telling people not to buy the products of apartheid mm-hmm. if you got them to actually use that energy and enthusiasm and networks and get people to buy products that would be a positive benefit to the people that they came from then 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 this would be a better way of doing business talk me through the early days of the business you you know you you basically built it from scratch as you say so what were you doing 
We were, I mean, so you, when you start a company, what you're trying to do is get your product stocked in as many places as possible and at the same time create a customer demand. And the problem is if you have to spend lots of money creating customer demand but actually there isn't very many places for people to buy it, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning we, we did work with people who were being very supportive. So one of the early investors in Divine was Body Shop International and they stocked our chocolate in their shops during sort of Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, so early in the year. And it meant that we could... Set advertise and say to people it was available in body shop and you could try it and then we could get those people to go and ask for it in other shops that they normally shopped in and so sort of breaking those circles and seeing how you could get consumers to start to have an awareness and start to ask for a product was one of the things we did i think one of the other things we did which was surprisingly successful was we worked with uh, another investor in divine was christian aid and they've got a fantastic network of supporters nationally so nationwide and so we did a nice mail out to them where they talked about Divine and the fact that the farmers owned it and the sort of plight of farmers in West Africa and said to those uh, supporters if you can go into the shops and ask for these products then that would be really helpful and so we did a postcard which was called a Stock the Chock postcard yeah, and they handed those postcards into their shop managers and um, and they also bought the chocolate if it was in a shop. And it really meant that they, they proved that there was a market for, the, for, for this chocolate. That was not coming from, that was, didn't come from nowhere. So that Christian Aid had done some very interesting work with its supporters where they'd got them to collect their till receipts in their local, from their local shops. So if, they all, if you think there's maybe 20 people in the local uh, Christian Aid group and they all shop in the same supermarket in their town, then they could look at what did they spend collectively in that supermarket over six months and they could sort of start to recognise that they were influential and yeah. so that they had a right to have a conversation with the shop manager and ask them what to stock. And so it was quite an interesting uh, use of that power. So, I, you know, I, we speak to a few entrepreneurs who are launching their own products um, and I, I don't think I've ever come across one with quite the same kind of campaigning mm -hmm. approach to getting, getting their products stocked in, um, in shops. Did you have the kind of trouble meeting buyers that, that most people who create their own products yes, no, have? No. I mean, get, getting to see a buyer is a big challenge. And obviously, um, like most products in Britain, a lot of chocolate is sold through the supermarkets. And, you know, five supermarkets have an enormously strong hold on uh, retail in the UK. Mm -hmm. So getting to see those buyers was very challenging. But we were very um, persistent you know, we were very passionate about the proposition. We really believed that this was a, a, a good, you know, we thought these products were great. We thought the margin was great, but we thought the business model was great. And so that sort of sense that gave you an appetite to keep on knocking on doors. And when we got to see people, I think they were quite surprised. I mean, they were that sense of if you're the chocolate buyer in a supermarket, you're normally seeing people from the big companies and they're saying how much they're spending next year and maybe a little bit of innovation. Whereas we're saying, do you know where chocolate comes from? And they're looking at us like, who is this crazy lady? What, why on earth did I let her in? You know? and, and, what, and their first answer is sort of Belgium and Switzerland, really, in that sort of sense Ooh. of it comes from those chocolatiers, you yeah, know, with yeah, the hats yeah. and the swirly chocolate. The and we're going, no, no, but it's made of cocoa. Do you, do you know where that comes from? And they're like, no. And we're showing them photographs of a cocoa pod where it looks like a you know, yellow rugby ball that grows on the trunk of the tree. And they're going, wow, no, I've never, never seen that. And we've done these really nice education packs for... Um, the top of junior school and the bottom of secondary school. So we had really lovely photographs and we showed the buyers those photographs and they were amazed because they never thought about where did chocolate come from, where, where did cocoa come from, the plight of the people who were actually growing the cocoa. And so this was all news to them and, and, and actually a much more exciting meeting than they thought they were going to have. Yeah. And so actually lots of them were much more 
helpful because you changed the whole mode of, of the conversation than they might have been otherwise. Yeah, because kind of rebranding chocolate a little bit. Yes. I, I mean, I'd like to think that we'd humanise the supply chain and we, you know, we'd personalise the supply chain. Yeah. We've got you to think about where it came from and that there were real people behind it who share our same hopes and fears. You know, they love watching the football. They're really cheering Ghana on, but they're <laughs> worrying about, you know, what their children's going to do in the future and, you know, what school they're going to. Yeah. Um, What about other challenges at the beginning? I mean, was there anything that was particularly hard because of the way that your company is built? I think the way our company was built was actually a real asset. I think having a really unique story that was inspiring people to go out and go, you know, the extra mile for us was a real asset. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we only had as hard a time knocking on doors. I do think the fact that the retail market in Britain is so concentrated is really, really a challenge. And that probably was the biggest challenge at the time. I think the other challenges came later. So in a way, we were lucky to, you know, from uh, 2000 right through to 2008, be working in a relatively stable environment. So Mm -hmm. that sense that you could forecast what your business was going to do and you knew what the exchange rates were and you knew what commodity prices were because they were all quite stable was a really nice environment to build a business. And then came 2008. I mean, that that was the challenge. (laughs) You've just been named runner-up in the Verve Clico Businesswoman Awards. You lost out to Whitbread CEO Alison Britton. How did that feel? <laughs> it would always, it's always nice to win, isn't it? I think as a com- person running a company, I'm bound to be a bit competitive. <laughs> but she was a really lovely lady. She's done an amazing job. You know, uh, Whitbread is an incredible o- organisation that's doing very well and doing very well in Britain. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Um, I was very pleased to be a finalist. It, it it was very nice to be considered among such an, a great amount of women who've won it. I mean, mm-hmm. Anita Roddick won it all those years ago. Uh, Caramelline McCall won it, who runs EasyJet. I mean, so there's been lots of phenomenal women who've run it. But also, I loved hearing the story of Madame Clicquot. I thought oh, the idea that, that in 1798, she marries into this family and by the time she's 27, she inherits running the business, you know, I said this story to my sister and she said, and who'd have thought, you know, that actually women existed in that century? We never hear about women running businesses. We might hear about them if they're queens. I joined the company at the stage where they had mobilised some very limited finance and they had developed the brand and they had the first recipe for the milk chocolate bar. So what I was really employed to do was make a really great idea into a reality. And the challenges that I faced are multiple in a way. So you're setting up a chocolate company in one of the most valuable territories in the world. One of the things that was a challenge is I hadn't sold food in Britain, so I'd come from the film industry. But in a way that became an asset because when you don't know things, you don't know that there are rules and you ask why and so sometimes that's a benefit to you and so that sense that we challenge the status quo I think was much more possible when you didn't know than if you had known. At the awards you talked about having a kind of naivete when you first started out as in you didn't really know how things are done in the chocolate business but that that was an advantage to you. I think it was a huge advantage because I sent I feel like if I had been in the industry before, then those rules that you that, that it's all governed by because you know the proper way to behave yeah. means that you are loath to ask questions. And sometimes asking those questions is how things change. So what questions did you ask? I think one of the ones that was probably more controversial was um, when I went to, when I finally got the meetings with the supermarket buyers and I'd had the Christian Aid supporters hand in the postcard asking for the chocolate and they'd then tasted the chocolate bar and thought it tasted great and we'd showed them the commercials and they'd said the margins were correct. And then they asked you for money. They asked you to pay to go on the shelf. And I was like, 
I don't understand this. There's a set of people who want you to stock it. They're asking for it and it's a good product. Why do I have to pay money to put it on the shelf? And so it's just a, it's a given that you pay, you pay listing fees. But I didn't know it was a given, so I asked the question. And certainly early on, I managed to get out of paying listing fees. Oh, well done. Fees. <laughs> we are a social enterprise. We are doing good. You are doing bad by asking us for money. Well, I think you'll do... I mean, I, think that, I don't think consumers are aware of what's going on. So when you see a product promoted in your supermarket, who do you think funds the promotion? Mm. I, don't, I, don't think you've bothered, I don't think people think that thought. Um, do you, I mean, can you see yourself and Alison working together? Because obviously Whitbread owns Costa Coffee, it owns Premier Inn. Well, yes, I did pitch while I was at the award ceremony. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll follow that up and have another, have another conversation. Hey, Emma here. We've got another podcast treat for you to check out when you're done here. We Are Women is presented by the writer and comic Viv Groskop. It's all about the triumphs and tribulations of being a woman, although there are plenty of takeaways for the men folk out there too. Whether it's My Dad Wrote a Porno podcaster Alice Levine on how sex brings colleagues together, entrepreneur Julia Hobsbawm on talking about how you look, totally transferring your career, or how sometimes vulnerability is the key to networking effectively. I would say start with episode one, The Art of Change, with Mariella Frostrup. She reveals just what can hold women back from success and what you can do about it. Subscribe to We Are Women in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere with RSS now. So moving, moving back to the business now, how many farmers do you work with now? So the farmers in Ghana are organised in a cooperative and they've got more than 85,000 members organised in 1,247 villages. So that's a lot of farmers delivering a lot of cocoa. So they make for like about 48,000 tonnes of cocoa. We only use about a thousand tons so we don't use a lot of their cocoa okay but we really help them have a, a sense of what the market's like um to have a reputation in mm -hmm. the cho chocolate industry and because we pay a guaranteed fair trade price and a fair trade premium and they get uh, we invest two percent of our turnover in working with the farmers helping them build their business and helping them address key issues and also they get a share of the profits then we are disproportionately valuable to them so but they're so they're organized in a cooperative and one of the things that i I'm most proud of that they've done because of our support is that they've really uh, worked with empowering women cocoa farmers. Okay. And so of those 85,000 members, 30% of them, 35% of them are now women. And so these are women who own their own farm and who are selling their cocoa and who've hit the grade in terms of the cocoa grade. And um, they're really, that's, that's quite extraordinary for that many women to be involved and to be members and to have a say in their own right and to have, uh, in 2010, they elected their first woman president for the organisation and in 2014, they elected their second one. So women are really participating actively in this organisation. And I think that's an, an amazing achievement. 85,000 people. Do you ever feel a crushing sense of responsibility? I feel as if... That's a very big cooperative. I mean, so I'm very pleased that recently they are going through a process of decentralisation. Okay. And so they've set up now in 57 districts and mm -hmm. we're working then intensively in two of those districts because I think it's quite difficult to be democratic with 85,000 people in one organisation. And so, yes, I do feel a responsibility. I feel an equal responsibility for the people who work here and the people who work in our American office. But I think with the farmers, I do feel as if we've really succeeded in getting them a platform for themselves. Mm -hmm. That sense that when we started in 1998, 
great people didn't know where cocoa came from. They'd never thought that it came from West Africa. They'd never thought about the farmers who spent their time growing it. And now, actually, lots of people have seen farmers. They've heard them speaking for themselves. In, in terms of mainstream chocolate companies, they talk about farmers. They've put pictures of cocoa pods on their bars. They've maybe even had interviews with farmers. And so that sense of we have created a different narrative for yeah. cocoa farmers, and that can't be undone. I mean, so, we, you know, that's the progress we've made. Going back to the financial crisis, um, in 2008, Divine was famously hit by the falling pound. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens if you don't make a profit? So the interesting thing from the point of view of the farmers is we pay the guaranteed fair trade price and the $200 a tonne fair trade social premium whether we make a profit or not. Okay. We also invest 2% of our turnover in working with farmers, mm -hmm. whether we make a profit or not. That's the business model. We then distribute the profit when we do make a profit and when the board has, you know, when the shareholders have agreed that that's a good idea and they then get 44% of that profit because they own 44% of the shares. So actually the financial crisis was troub troubling for us as a company and the fact that it took uh, increased, hugely increased our costs of goods, which meant that we had very little margin, which meant that we couldn't promote. Yeah. That was a real problem for us as a company, mm -hmm. but it didn't immediately affect the farmers until it started to affect the volume of cocoa chocolate we were selling. And what about now? The pound's fallen massively. Have, have you learnt lessons from last time? Has anything changed? We have indeed, yes. No, so one of the things that we did was we looked at our policies and we um, made a decision that we were always going to make sure that we were... Uh, we had bought forward currency so that we had protected our margin mm -hmm. in the immediate time, which then bought us some time to change our pricing over time. And so I think um, that was a, you know, that was a good change in policy. Um, and then also we, I think we know now that you do have to sometimes put your prices up. You can't just keep your price down forever because if you don't have any margin and you don't promote, then your volumes will drop and you won't be competitive and then you'll lose your shelf space. So we are now much more bullish about those conversations because we get that we can't run a business if we don't do this. Moving on to social enterprise. Now the David Cameron society, big society is, is over, that era is over. I feel like I haven't heard as much about social enterprise as I have before. Is it over? Is social, the social no. enterprise era over? <laughs> no, so obviously it's not over. I've got to say that I think the previous, I think the, uh, the, the, the Blair and uh, Brown government did a lot more for social enterprise than the Cameron government. And so certainly we were part of a scheme that was called the Social Enterprise Ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting uh, three years where they brought together leaders of businesses in all sorts of businesses. So some of them might have been doing uh, social care, they might be running leisure centres, they might be running buses, or they might be running chocolate companies and we were all and so we really sort of recognized the depth of the businesses that we were running and the breadth of the businesses we were running and I think the that government really did showcase uh, social enterprise I think what you've seen is that there is um, some very thriving social enterprises Greenwich Leisure would be a very good example of one that's you know a dominant provider of leisure facilities inside the M25 and mm -hmm. now is also delivering leisure facilities outside of the M25 um, I think what's also happened, though, in a way, uh, you've also, in a way, more more companies are doing things that are more sociable. More companies are doing fair trade things. So if you think okay. about in two thousand and nine, Cadbury's converted Cadbury's dairy milk to fair trade, and then Kit Kat, and then Maltesers, and so that sense of actually what we're in some ways what you're seeing is that it's gone more mainstream. Cadbury's has withdrawn from fair trade now. Do you think that's going to be a wider? movement i mean we're in the donald trump era now it's every man for himself 
So I hope it isn't. Um, I think what Cadbury's is saying is they've got a scheme of their own. Um, I think that's um, not as good as fair trade because I think it's important to have third party verification. Mm-hmm. I think, as, you know, so I've obviously I've described in this programme how I was a campaigner. You know, I was an activist and I wanted to know where products came from and, you know, who was getting the money from them. And in order for me to believe what a company's saying, I think it's important that there's third party verification. And I think that fair trade and organic certification both are third party verification. It means that a company says something, but somebody else is confirming that it's true. So I, as a consumer, can trust that claim. And so I worry about what Cadbury's is doing. And I hope that isn't the model for the future. Um, and I think B Corp then is an interesting next step because that's about whole companies and there's some very yeah. fantastic companies doing it. I mean, was there a part of you that when Cadbury's and whoever else announced they were going to do fair trade, was there a part of you that was a bit worried about the competition? I think what was interesting is when we set out in 19... When I joined the company in 1999, we wanted to convert chocolate in Britain mm-hmm. to fair trade. We wanted it to be the norm. And so at the point when Cadbury's converted... That had to be a success. That was what we were setting out to do. It clearly was hugely challenging for us as a business because Mm -hmm. we no longer were the only fair trade option. But it was fantastic for farmers because the volume of cocoa that Cadbury's buys is just so huge and that delivers so so much benefits to farmers. So I think the saddest thing about Cadbury's pulling out is that fair trade price and premium that the farmers are getting, they're no longer getting. And I think that's really sad. Oh, I wanted to move on to charities because obviously, you're, you know, you've worked with charities. Um, do you ever get just insanely frustrated with them? Because they are these giant, unwieldy organisations. I think there's lots of different ones. I mean, so the, what, the ones we've worked with have been, uh, well, certainly Christian Aid, I've really enjoyed working with. I think the level, you know, Christian Aid and Oxfam both have really worked with their supporters to really increase their understanding of some very complicated things. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that people in Britain have a view on it, an international trade deal, a lot of that's down to the work that people like Tradecraft and Oxfam and Christian Aid have done for you know, 35 years. Yeah. And so we wouldn't be having a sensible conversation if they hadn't done that work on the ground. I think some of the ones, the, some of the things that become difficult, which are the same with working with big corporations, is that when they become very big, do they know what, you know, the left hand, does the left hand know what the right hand's doing? Yeah. I think that's the bit that gets frustrating. But working with Comic Relief when we started was so amazing to have that level of visibility and that level of association with something that was so popular and known for doing something good. It was just hugely valuable. And so all our educational materials we developed with Comic Relief and that was a, you know, that was a, a gift for a company. So they're a delight. Yes. No, they were a delight to work with, actually. OK. Um, so a last question, really, and that's, it's more of a philosophical one. Um, as you said, you were a campaigner for a long time. Do you think that the way politics is going right now, there is another civil rights movement on the way? I think we're in a moment of transition, actually. I think that the, what, where, where we've got to is that you're seeing through um, social media a different level of information transfer. And politics hasn't really changed to go with that changing information environment. It stayed strong and stable. Uh, well, I mean, it hasn't. It's actually stayed 
apart in a way and so it's tried to carry on as if it was the same as it was before and what we've seen now you know in the french elections as well as in the american elections and in in the referendum you know in scotland and things is that actually it's not keeping up with people's expectations of their ability to have a say to have a view but also that they don't necessarily hold a party line mm -hmm. so that you know you might have a very passionate view about how the nhs runs but that might not be the same to do with what you think about general taxation and so that sense of um, it would be very interesting to look at a political system that enabled people to have much more of a consensus and much more of a, a conversation and feel like their vote counted. Mm -hmm. So if I live in a constituency where it's got a huge majority for one party, then is my vote relevant? That's, that's making people feel like they can't join in. And so I think it's very important that we look at the electoral system you know, is, is there a version of proportional representation that would be good for us here? And look at the benefits of coalition governments, because it does look like in countries where that's happened, people are more engaged with the political process and feel more empowered in the conversation. And I think it's really important that we get young people to feel like they're part of the conversation mm -hmm. and that we really are genuinely listening to them because it's the world, you know, we're making the world that they're going to have to live in and we need to make sure it's one that's fit for all of us and, and surviving. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, Sophie, I'm going to go and buy a giant slab of fair trade chocolate and chow down on it. So thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Credits time. With thanks to Sophie Chanchel, plus our podcast producer, Jamie Wareham, this has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. As usual, subscribe in all the places podcasts live. Give us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. It's a really easy way to keep the show going by putting it in front of more eyes and ears. And you can email advertising at audioboom.com with guest suggestions or to find out how to get us talking about your brand to our ABC One millennial audience. We love to hear from you guys. So this week's Twitter conversation is when do you eat chocolate? I am thinking about that Galaxy advert from about 2013 where she just sits on the sofa when her flatmate's out. Tweet me at Emma Hazlitt with two T's and let me know. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production. <laughs>